All right. What we're going to do over the next four Sundays to the end of January is uh, we're going to start a series on transformation. And we're going to... <laughs> we're going to look at the transformation through the gospel of the heart and the mind. We're going to look at transformation of uh, UK culture. We're going to look at transformation of the nations. And we're going to look at the transformation of the cosmos, including our bodies. So we're going to cover that in four weeks. Um, so we're going to hit some, hit some huge subjects. Um, Tonight's subject is in some ways perhaps the most difficult when we come to thinking about change and transformation and that is our hearts and our minds because we don't change easy. People are not easy to change. In fact, the older you get, it's not a myth that the more set in your ways you get. You become established with a sense of this is who I am, this is what I do, this is what I don't do. Have you, have you ever tried changing someone? It's very difficult, if not impossible. Through force, you can make someone do something, but you haven't changed them. So if we think back to some of the religious wars of centuries ago, and we've got, we've got people converting at the edge of the sword, but they're not converting, are they? You're so responsive tonight. They're not converting, nothing's changing. They just don't want to get killed at that point. So they'll say what's expected of them. But to change someone, to actually change someone, is an extraordinary feat. Some husbands and wives try to change one another. And uh, it either goes really one of three ways. Um, you know, either um, the husband or wife under pressure feigns change. They act in a way that's required of them, but begrudgingly and inside there's been no change. Or the marriage just uh, breaks down. Or wisdom comes. And sooner or later that husband and wife realises that it's a sin to try and change their spouse. If they wanted their spouse to be different, they should have married someone else. See, changing someone is, is holy ground. Because you've got to work out the difference between your God-given personality and character issues, which, do, which very often do need changing. And it's not always easy to spot them, and it's, it's a real minefield. Well, I want to look at it tonight, and because um, the bottom line is, is that the most powerful testimony of the gospel is a changed life. Surely the most powerful testimony to the gospel is that this person is genuinely different. And no one can quite explain it, because they look the same. And in some ways, they're, they're the same. Their temperament is the same and their personality is the same and yet they are completely different. And it's mystifying. I remember my friends were mystified when I got saved. They didn't know what to make of it. And um, they reacted in different ways. Some laughed, laughed it off. Um, others, I think, probably just got a bit freaked out and just kept their distance. Others were intrigued and said, let's go out and can we talk about this? Because they saw it. Because there was an internal change. And uh, that's what the gospel does. In fact, if the gospel doesn't do that, we might as well just pack up and go home. Is that right? Because really, what, what, are we, what are we up to? 
And I want us to just maybe really delve in in depth into this whole idea of transformation and the kind of transformation that the gospel claims to bring. It's important that we get it right because I think it's a tragedy when people meet someone who is a Christian and um, there may be some differences superficially, okay? It may be that, I don't know, you know, they don't know any modern songs, you know, because <laughs> they only listen to praise albums now or, you know, or, you know, I don't know, they, they're into certain bizarre fads that grip the Christian world for certain seasons like... Like those posters of um, fluffy kittens playing with a scripture at the bottom. And those kinds of things. You know, the Christians get really excited about and everyone's selling them and all around the bedroom. And so, so there's some, they're different. But when it gets to the heart of the matter, the person who's not a Christian realises this person's just as selfish as me. Or just as anxious as me. And that's tragic. Because fluffy kittens isn't the kind of transformation Jesus promises to bring. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He promises to bring something much deeper than that. But I want to ask some of the questions tonight. Like, does the gospel transform us? Can the gospel transform us? Can our hearts be changed? Can our minds be changed? Can we change the way that we think? How does it work? Does it involve any work on our part? Or does it just happen miraculously when we become Christians? Is the gospel promise of transformation really any different from the promises of self-help courses or um, positive thinking or yoga and other practices and disciplines that promise well-being and promise peace of mind and promise um, a sense of balance and all these other things? These are huge questions. Now, I could do it two ways. The first way I could do it is I could take it to certain verses in the Bible about transformation and piece it together, or I could do it by just looking at a person, doing a life story. We're going to do the latter. We're going to look at a life story. We're going to look at Peter tonight. We're going to look at the story of Peter from the point where he first meets Jesus uh, right through to his death, and um, just learn the story of transformation through that. You up for that? Yes. Now, here's the thing. There's quite a few little instances which if we went to the Scriptures in all of them, um, we would just be reading the scriptures all night and we'd have a chance to unpack it. I was, um, I was, uh, I was warmly criticised after the service this morning by someone, by a guest who said, you didn't read the Bible at all. <laughs> and I thought, oh yeah. Um, but I, I jumped to my defence and said, download any sermon you like off the internet and there will be scripture being read on it. You know. um, but it, was, it is a bit different, really because we're just... We're just tracking many different instances that go on, and I don't really want to delve in depth into one, just give you the round off and make some comments. So I hope you'll bear with me on that front tonight. And when you get home, please verify the, uh, the references and check them out for yourself and make sure I wasn't making them up. But um, um, otherwise, we will literally be here for hours if I read every passage. But we're going to start in, um, in Luke chapter 5. And really, what happens is this Jesus is teaching at the Lake of Galilee, where Peter, it's where he um, practices, practices his. Uh, um, his trade of fishing, and he's a fisherman, and Jesus goes to teach, but being the popular teacher he is, the crowds threaten to really uh, damage him, harm him, and so he asks to use Simon Peter's boat, and he sets out a little bit and teaches from the boat to the crowd. After that, by way of saying thank you, he really says, Look, why don't you put your boat out for a, for a catch? Now at this point, Peter who uh, says, well look, we've been up all night, They've been fishing all night. They said, we haven't caught a thing. But at your say-so, we'll, we'll, we'll let the net down. So they go out, they let the net down, and it is, they catch a dangerously large amount of fish. And they have to call for help. 
James and John to, to, is to stop the boat from sinking, and they bring, the, they bring the boats back in. At which point, Peter says this. Peter says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, Lord. And it's a surprising response. You think, why? Surely you'd just be really happy. You know, you've got to make loads of money from this. He didn't say it after Jesus' teaching, but there was something of this, the glory of it. Was it that Jesus is Lord of creation and could have, how do you do that? You know, was it that? I don't know what it was. But what I know is, is that Peter saw something of the holiness of Jesus. And the first step of transformation began, and that step is called conviction. And conviction is a work of the Holy Spirit. And what happens is, is that suddenly you realise that when you're around Jesus, you are sinful. You can't generate or contrive that. Naturally, we don't find ourselves sinful. We find ourselves okay. Yeah, we've always got someone worse to compare ourselves with, haven't we? All of us. Not as bad as so-and-so. And we kind of, in our minds, shore ourselves up with various things. And when we do something good, we feed off it for days. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, he did do that. You know, I'm not, I'm not that bad. But... There's this thing that happens to Peter, this conviction, where suddenly this, I guess, previously confident and casual fisherman falls on his knees and says, please go away. Now, it looks negative. You think, is this transformation? Come, he's, he's asking Jesus to go away. It's, it's vital. Whether it's negative or not is besides the point. It's vital. Because without conviction, you'll never see your sin. And you need to understand your sinfulness. If you're ever going to get saved, if you're ever going to discover transformation, you need to see your sinfulness. Now this is where yoga, self-help, psychology cannot help us. They don't deal with sin. They may redefine it and talk about negative energy or they may just ignore it, but they can't deal with the power of sin. They've got nothing to say when it comes to this. They simply say, no, just blank your mind out and think of nothing. Or, well, you know, just overcome this. And, and, but no, it's sin. Sin is powerful. Sin holds us under its grip, under its government, under its mastery. You can't just snap out of it or blank your mind. You can blank your mind as much as you like. You're still a sinner. What are you going to do? Peter says, go away from me. Conviction is vital. If you've never seen your sinfulness, I'll question whether you're a Christian. Big claim. If you've never mourned your sin, if you've never been horrified at yourself, whenever I speak to someone and they begin telling me that they're not that bad, I'm a Christian but I'm really not that bad, but I know they're not Christians. I'm sitting and I'm thinking, you're not a Christian. I know you're not a Christian. You haven't seen your sin. It's not a negative or a bad thing. It's a good thing. Why? Because it's reality. And if you're going to really come to know God, He is the God of all reality and the truth has to come. And this is where it starts. He is holy. We are not. Jesus in His grace says, don't be afraid. Peter's like, please just go. Don't be afraid. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Conviction, calling. Stage two. The calling comes. Jesus says, come, follow me. It's beautiful. This is a beautiful, beautiful moment. 
It's decisive. It's radical. We're told that Peter drops his nets. He leaves his nets in one of the other gospel accounts and he follows Jesus. Why? Is fishing wrong? No. What is it speaking of? It's a breaking with the old and embracing the new. Yeah? The, the direction changes completely and orientates towards Jesus Christ. That is the calling. That's what happens. It is miraculous. It really is mir- utterly miraculous. I am still staggered at what Jesus has done in me. It's like, you know, you think, I can't turn this thing off even if I wanted to. I'm just turned towards Jesus. How did it happen? I certainly didn't make it happen. I couldn't if I tried. There's a calling. Calls you by name. Come on. Follow me. This is very important, this point. I want to illustrate it. I need uh, six volunteers. Come and join me. Four. No one's going to hurt you. Six. Okay. All right. If, um, Matt, you can come up here. You guys, if you could just stand over there for now. And you as well, Pete. Sorry. And um, here we have Matt. Typical Londoner. Westerner. What? Yeah. Now, Matt, like most uh, people in London, has um, been sold the lie and believed it that it's all about him. <laughs> it's all about him. Yeah, it's all about you. You deserve it. Yeah, because you're worth it. <laughs> all that stuff? Right. He's been sold that and he's gone and believed it. All right? So he's, 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 um, his head's down. And he's just kind of, he's just making sure that his needs are being met because it's all about him. Yeah, and that and the life's comfortable and that everything's happening his way. Yeah? All right. So he's, he's revolving around himself. All right? <laughs> it's as futile as that. All right? <laughs> and then suddenly, conviction comes, right? So he's, 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 his head comes up because suddenly he's made aware that all is not well, right? So he's been, something's happened, but. Hallelujah. Something's happened. He's become all is not well. This is futile. This is empty. And, and, and there's a sense of it looks like God's at work. But at this point, we've got these dudes coming. All right? If you could just surround this man. And they've got various offers for Matt. So we've got Tom O'Toole looking very intimidating there because <laughs> he's bigger northern. And uh, <laughs> Tom. Tom comes in with, uh, with, um, with yogic meditation and says, um, as, as, as northerners do, and, uh, and Tom says, and Tom says, because uh, you know yoga, the thing with yoga is, is that it kind of gets plugged as just like a physical exercise. The word means union, and the whole message behind it is that really if you follow this path where you can find genuine union and harmony within yourself, it's a, it's a gospel promise. You've got you to be aware of that. You've got to go beneath the surface of these things. Don't just take them at face value. So really what Tom is saying to me at this stage is like, you know, listen, just come, come over here and you can find well-being, balance, union, that sense of peace that everyone's lacking with me. Okay, so we've got Tom over there doing this. And then who else have we got? We've got Adam Martin here. Adam Martin. And Adam Martin comes in as good and noble causes. Okay? Adam, Adam, he says, yeah, you're feeling empty because you've just been living for yourself. But look, 
There's charity that you can work for. You can work in the PDSA shop in Kentish Town uh, Monday afternoons and feel good about all those cats you're helping. And, uh, that might deal with your sense of emptiness and conviction that, that you're living with. And there's other things you can even give. Maybe there's a little orphan project going on. You can give some money to that and that can make you feel better about yourself. Then we have uh, Sarah over here. And Sarah comes in with, um, with a bit of self-help. And Sarah's like, no, Matt. You can do it. You can do it. Within you, you've got it. You, Matt, you're the man. You need to look in the mirror and tell yourself, you're the man. And tell yourself, you can do it. Because it's all about you. And you can overcome this sense of emptiness because you've got it within you. Okay? So she comes in as self-help. And then we've got Dave Mance over here. And Dave comes in as a natural philosophy. If you've been on the tubes... And looking at some, reading some of the posters, there's a big push on natural philosophy and the push towards wisdom. You see, and he says, Matt, if you understand life and you understand what it's about and you get wisdom, wisdom leads to peace. Wisdom leads to that sense of equilibrium that you're after. And then the, finally, we've got Peter Ferns. And Peter Ferns is coming in his religion. He's saying, no, Matt, what you need is to be devoted, to be devoted to something outside of yourself and beyond yourself. Uh, it doesn't really matter what, but you, it's that kind of religious devotion that you need. Maybe just try some different things, um, whichever one really you find works for you, whichever one sits with you, because it's all about you, ultimately. But whichever one sits with you and is good for your palate, you come in on, okay? These are the, and these are the offers that come in. The problem is this, is whichever one Matt goes for, it leaves him feeling exactly the same way as he felt before. Why? Because they are all finite and man-made as well. He was into the finite and the man-made, realised it was empty, it was about him, and all these other offers are coming in, they're finite and man-made. Religion, it's all just, it's man-made, finite. It will not hit him where he needs to be hit, which is in the place of the infinite. He's been made by the infinite one, in the image of the infinite one, with a hunger to taste the glory of the infinite one. Okay, that's not religion. That's walking with God. And so we're hoping that Jesus in his mercy will speak above that and say, Matt. And when, when, and when Matt hears his own name being called by Jesus Christ, something in his deepest part will come alive and he'll know what he's made for. Thank you, guys. It's great. So we've got conviction and we've got calling. Next, we have a change of name or a change of identity. Matthew 16. Jesus is with his disciples and he says to his disciples, who do people say I am? And they say, well, some say Elijah, other various prophets. And then Jesus says, but who do you say I am? Peter being Peter steps forward and says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Jesus says to him, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, Simon, son of Jonah, your name will be Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You see? So there's this moment of revelation. Jesus, Peter sees it. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus says you only get that by revelation. See? I can say Jesus is Lord, the Lord, the only way. Without the Holy Spirit's help, you'll be sat there thinking, who says? That's so narrow. That's so arrogant. You need the Holy Spirit to come along and roll up that Ikea blind over your heart so the sunshine of the glory of Jesus can burst into your heart and you can see and when you see by the spirit you know 
You, and you, you say, I really don't want to be arrogant. I want to try and look as humble as I can. But I can't lie. I know Jesus is, I know he's the way, the truth, and the life. Holy Spirit brings that revelation. But then Jesus in response says, I'm going to give you a new name. It has been Simon. Now it's going to be Peter. You're a rock. And this is an amazing part of transformation that Jesus brings. He gives you a new identity. You see, all of us get called names. We get given identities to our parents, upbringing, school, authority figures. They say things about us that have power. And they shape the way we think about ourselves and the choices that we make. And then when Jesus breaks into our life, you know what? He has something unique to say and it's the final word. He knows you. He knows who you are. And his word is the final word. It's so important you understand that. It's so important. He says you are beloved. He says you are chosen. He says you are mine. He says you are adopted. He says you are accepted in me. He says you are forgiven, you are cleansed. And then he will say certain things that are pertinent to you and who he's made you and what he's made you for. When I was baptised, one of the guys baptised me said God's called you to be a warrior. And it's stuck with me for the last 18 years. It's just, it's like, yeah, it was a, it was a Matthew 16 moment. There was another moment where I remember growing up, uh, my best friend, he was such a clear visionary. I know I'm called to this, I'm called to this, I'm called to that. And I'll be there thinking, oh, I don't know, well, no, I love Jesus, you know. And then one day, another friend said, I've got a word for you. And he said, you're God's man. And I was like, yeah, that'd do me. You know, I suddenly thought, I don't care where I go or what I do, if I can be God's man. Yeah, Jesus speaks. He speaks this and brings this brand new identity. You've got to hear that. You've got to hear that in your heart. Otherwise, you'll just be being shaped by everyone else's expectations of you. Friends, peers, parents, wherever you find yourself, current thought. Jesus has got an identity especially for you. Hallelujah. So that's, this, is, this is how transformation works. This is how it works, you see. It's Jesus doing stuff by his spirit. And then we get the moment where Jesus brings some hard teaching and he's being followed by thousands and basically they pretty much all desert him. And he's left with the twelve and Jesus looks at them and he says, are you going to go as well? And Peter, he says, where can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. At this point now, Peter's prepared to count the cost. Conviction. Calling, change of identity, name, cost. He's prepared to say, do you know what? They're all going that way, but I'm going this way. Something's happened within him. He's far from perfect, we'll see that in a minute. But he's saying, I don't care if everyone's going that way, I'm following you, Jesus. This is a vital part of conversion, a vital part of transformation. It's that you don't fit. Okay? If you're a Christian... You're not going to fit. And I will say this to you now. If you make it your aim to fit, from that point on, you've stopped following Jesus. You really have. I I just want to testify that. I have made little decisions to fit. Little ones. Over my walk. Sometimes medium ones, probably, actually. Over my walk as a Christian. Every time, it has significantly dulled my relationship with Jesus. Tangibly. I'm like, you know when you... Something's up. (laughs) Now, it's not that I now make it my aim not to fit. No, I make it my aim to follow Jesus. Yeah? If I fit, I fit. If I don't, I don't. But I'm following Jesus. That's the deal. And sometimes it's like you're going upstream. And everyone's going that way. But you can't go that way. Do you know what I mean? You just, where, where can I go? 
You've got the words of eternal life. Then, I would say this. We have <laughs> confusion. So Peter, what does he do? He's, he steps out of the boat when he sees Jesus walking on the water, and he walks on the water, but then he sinks in the water. It looked really good for a while, and then it looked all a bit normal. We've got Jesus saying to Peter, you're the rock. And about 10 minutes later, saying to him, get behind me, Satan. Not great. You wouldn't want Jesus to say that to you, would you? Can you imagine Peter? He's thinking, I thought I was the rock. (laughs) Now I'm Satan. (laughs) Not very pastoral. (laughs) What's going on there? Well, why did Jesus say that to him? Well, because he tried to undermine Jesus' mission. Jesus is predicting he's going to get crucified. Peter says, not you, Lord. No, no, no. Jesus says, you get behind me, Satan. What you're saying is this. Peter, what you are saying is satanically inspired. You think you're being kind, but it's straight from the pit. How how would you feel? (laughs) Please put yourself in his shoes. He was a real person. Don't get into all that. Well, he was a Bible character. He was a real person. (laughs) Yeah, how would you feel? It's in front of everyone as well. You were just thinking, I'm the rock, I'll, I'll come in with another wise one. <laughs> no, Jesus, not you. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Blown it. You know, you just would, you know, what would you do? Other ones, there's other ones. <laughs> We've got Jesus, Peter's up the mountain with Jesus and um, Peter and James and John, privileged, you know, the inner circle, the three. Jesus gets transfigured. So the veil is lifted. We, he's seen in his glory. And then, man alive, Moses and Elijah turn up, right? James and John do the wise thing. They sit and watch. Peter, oh no. Let's build some tents, Lord. We can all live here. You can imagine James and John saying, oh, he's done it again, you know. And you can imagine, like, you know, Moses and Elijah, they've been in, <laughs> in the glory realm for the last few centuries. They sort of go, who's that guy? <laughs> Man, you know, it's, it's, it just doesn't fit. It's, it's immature. What is with Jesus washing their feet? Washes, washing all their feet comes to, comes to Peter. Mm-mm. And Jesus says, well, if you don't let me wash your feet, you've got nothing to do with me. What does Peter do? Okay, bath me. <laughs> Pete, there's no need for it. You're so extreme. <laughs> You're so extreme, isn't he? Maybe some of you are like that. Take heart. Take heart. He's like, no, bath me, Lord. He's like, no, what's your feet? Can you imagine the others going, oh, mate. <laughs> Why can't he just let Jesus do it? You know, he always knows better. And it's embarrassing. And it's immature. But it's normal. The only difference is, is that I think the others were as silly as Peter. They just kept quiet. <laughs> Peter, <laughs> you know, you know you've, got a risk, you've got a risk taken among you. You think, well, he'll do it. It's fine. We'll see, we'll see if we'll do it and if it works. Because it, you, always, you need one, don't you? You know, he's going to always fall forward. Well, that's Peter. But you think, is it really bad? Well, actually, do you know what? No, it's, it's highly embarrassing at times. Inappropriate. But he still belongs. And he's actually, he leads the 12. He's the leader. That guy. Because the others are just as silly. Just as immature, but they're just timid. Peter doesn't have that problem, so he's one step ahead. See? But it's like, I mean, it's like that indoors, it's like that with, with, with kids. 
you know, your kids reach an age where they, they begin to get adult conversation a bit. They get it a bit. They think they get it, but they get it a bit. Yeah? So they, they get involved. But the things they say are just like the worst things anyone could say. You know, so you've got friends around and suddenly the kids pipe in with dad's most private and embarrassing story. <laughs> That's totally between the family, you know, and no one else will ever know about it. And now everyone does. Dad's worst habits. And they tell it, and no one knows what to do, and you just think, you know, I really can't wait till everyone leaves. <laughs> We're going to have words. You know? And you know, what is it? Well, it's just, but it's still mine. It's still mine, but it's just immature. Or when they're really loving each other, your, your kids, you think, oh, look at the way they love each other. And you look at your wife, and your wife looks at you and you think, we're doing something right. And then five minutes later, one of them's pushed the other one down the stairs. <laughs> and you're like, oh, no. And you think, no, it's all right, but they're immature. And part of the transformation process is this immaturity. And it goes on for years. And hopefully it improves. But, you know, every now and then you still do, you know, you, you, do, you, you, you do one and you think, oh, no. I want to just say this to you, that part of knowing the Lord and just going on with him, there, there's, a, there's a long season of great successes, but really embarrassing faux pas as well. And you've just got to walk it. But when you walk it, you don't kill yourself with discouragement. And then we come to the big moment, just before Peter's calamity. And it's where Jesus sees it coming, and Jesus says, look, Satan's after you. And he's asked... He's asked if he could sift you like wheat. Because, um, you know, Satan sees the anointing. He sees it. He sees the anointing on Peter. He says, I want to get him. I want to take that one out. Because he's, he's, he's got a bit of get up and go about him for Jesus. I want to take him out. And Jesus sees it coming and he says, I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And when you return, when you repent, you'll be out of strength in your brothers. I'm going to work good through it. He's covered. I want to say this to you. If you're a Christian, you're covered. Yeah? Because Satan is after you. I don't want to say that in a scaremongering way. But he wants to render you fruitless. He wants to somehow make you as impotent as possible in the kingdom. Jesus says, got it covered. Got your cup. Prayed for you. He prays for you. Hallelujah. He prays for you. But then comes the calamity, he didn't, he, the big failure. He denies Jesus. I mean, this is, this is big. This is huge on numbers of levels. He's the leader. He's been publicly affirmed by Jesus. You, you know, I'm going to build my church on you. He's been around when Jesus has taught things like this. You deny me before men, I'll deny you before the angels in heaven. He's, he knows he's been around this. And he knows there's this calling on him to lead and to step up. And he's looked apart for a while. He's even chopped someone's ear off with a sword when Jesus got arrested. I mean, it was pretty, you know, Jesus had to straight away step in and heal the guy, you know. But, but at, least he's, at least he's got a bit of guts, you know. And then suddenly it all just, once he realises he can't do it in the flesh, that's not allowed, the sword play, he doesn't know, he doesn't know what, he, he, he just, this huge streak of fear is exposed in him. He never would have seen it in himself. The others would never have seen it in himself. But it's in there, lurking in the shadows, bang, it comes out. And I, I think Peter's surprised himself. I think everyone is. He denies it. And then, and then the worst moment of it is, is that just, just as he denies Jesus for the third time, the rooster crows, Jesus turns around and looks at him. And just that moment of everything 
I thought was going to happen, I've probably just blown. I mean, I'm sure that's what he's thinking. I've just blown the lot. And we're told that he goes out and he weeps bitterly. There are, for some, maybe the majority of us, moments in our Christian walk where we really blow it. Really blow it. It's not the stuff I was talking about earlier, the immaturity. It's bad. We fall into horrendous sin of one kind or another. And then what? You know, because it can feel like that's it. And we've got to track this one through because it's terrible. And you think, was he transformed? Was there a work of God in his life? What was all of that? Because it just looks completely like, well, there was nothing really there of substance. The pressure came and look, he's folded. So you can think, what is he even saved? What is it? Well, I want to take you, we're going to conclude really at, um, I think it's the most glorious moment of Peter's life. I think it's the most glorious moment. It's not preaching at Pentecost when 3,000 get saved. It's not when his shadows are healing the sick. It's not when he preaches to Cornelius and sees the first harvest of Gentiles saved. It's none of those things. What happens is he, he's deeply depressed and discouraged and so he says, I'm going fishing. What's he saying? He's saying, he's saying oh, I've blown it. It's basically all over. I'm going back just to do what I was doing before. That's all I know. Anyone want to come? And some of the guys say, yeah, we'll come with you. They've still got a bit of leadership about him. You know, so he just goes. They fish through the night, nothing. Deja vu? Dawn's coming and there's a uh, character on the shore there. They can't quite make him out. He says, uh, try the other side of the boat. So they throw it over. And what do you know? Net full of fish. This is, for me, at this point now, the most beautiful moment in Peter's life. John says... It's the master. What does Peter do? He does the most illogical thing. <laughs> Beautiful though. He's stripped down to his um, um, undergarments because he's working. He puts his cloak on so that he can jump into the lake. <laughs> this guy in it. What's he doing? He doesn't know what he's doing, actually, but he needs to get close to Jesus. I've called this, can't help it. And this is the moment where we see the depth of the work of grace and transformation in Peter's life. He's blown it. He's the biggest Christian Wally ever to have lived. He's, he's folded. He's everything, every accusation, yeah. But he needs to get near Jesus. I think he's sure he's going to get a telling off. He's sure he's going to get a rebuke. He doesn't care. I've got to be near him. Why? Well, because when it's all said and done, do you know what? I really blew it, but I love him. Yeah, I love him. I love Jesus. And I'm sure, you know, he was surprised when he landed on the beach and he thinks, I can smell barbecue. Jesus is cooking breakfast. See, in that culture, if you're with someone, you're saying, I'm your friend. And they have breakfast together and he takes him for a walk and he asks him the three times, the key question, do you love me? Yeah, you know I love you. And he asks him it three times to, to heal him from the pain of the, the, the failure and then he recommission, recommissions him feed my sheep and it's beautiful it's beautiful because we all make mistakes and sometimes make big ones but when you are saved when you are when you've been convicted called had your identity changed by Christ when you're a new person you've been converted 
There's a work of grace that goes deeper than your biggest mistakes. Praise God for that. <laughs> and everything Jesus promised over him comes to pass. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I'll say that again. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It's Romans 11. I think it's 22. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then there's just this lovely moment I did mention this morning where Peter does a classic. He's so, he's so beautifully human. He sees John out the corner of his eye when he's talking to Jesus and he says, what about him? <laughs> you know, what about him? You know, because he's thinking, well, he didn't make the big mistake that I did. Is he, you know, what's the... Is he going to like, overtake me now? Or is he, you know, you know, Jesus just says, I'll paraphrase it. Don't worry about him. You follow me. Yeah? Yeah? Don't worry about him. You follow me. And I think sometimes Christians can get very paralysed around others and comparing. No, don't worry about him. You follow me. That's what Jesus says. You follow me. That's what you're called to do. At the end of the day, you're called to follow Jesus. And then Peter, in his death, it's not in the Bible, but church history teaches that he, he was crucified upside down. They wanted to crucify him under severe Roman persecution, but he refused to be, uh, to be crucified. He said, oh, I'm not worthy to die in the same way that my master died. So you'd have to do me upside down. The man who actually feared crucifixion. Because he was trying to do the whole thing in his own strength and out of his own resources as this self-sufficient leader type guy. He's been broken He's been smashed to tiny pieces. Um, that streak of fear and pride has been cleared out and there's just the Holy Spirit really there now, <laughs> residing on the throne in a very deep and powerful way. And uh, he just goes through and he glorifies Jesus in his death as much as in his life. So how are we going to conclude? Conversion, Christian conversion is very radical. It is completely unlike any of those other things we mentioned earlier that were surrounding Matt. Completely different. Because the essence of sin is to kick against the Creator. All of those things, outside of their proper realm, still kick against the Creator. They still say, you can be God. Sin isn't, in its essence, stealing or in its essence murdering, in its essence it's rebelling against the creator and worshipping the created. The only thing that can deal with that in the heart of man is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. His life lived for your behalf perfectly, the kind of life you could never live, lived for you. His death, a death of judgment and a death of cursed death in your place. His resurrection for you and he invites you into his victory. That's the only thing that can deal with sin at its heart. So conversion is very, very radical. The whole orientation of our moral centre is changed away from self and sin and towards Jesus. Away from the created, towards the creator. It's massive, but it's only a beginning. Like a newborn. So when a newborn comes, it's a huge moment. <laughs> wow! But it's a long way to go. Yeah? Lots to be done, still. It's exactly like that. There's much to be undone from our previous life experience and Jesus will do so by revelation. He'll do so by his word. He'll do so by trials. He'll do so by correction. He'll do so by praying for you. There'll be seasons that are a mixture of amazing success 
and real like real things that make you cringe and want to just go go to bed for five hours. <laughs> there may be moments of significant failure and falling, but your love for Jesus will only be purified by those. He'll bring you to the end of yourself. He'll bring you to real repentance so that he can restore you and fulfill his plan for you. You'll never be free from sin while you are in the body, but you'll be able to live a life that brings in glory and brings other people hope. It brings, even brings with it, you'll be able to bring with you the fragrance of another world, pointing people towards Jesus. And here's the big deal. It's all about him, not religion. He starts this. He works in you. He provides his spirit to empower you. He picks you up when you fall. He picks you through trials, but makes sure you don't altogether fail. He brings you to the end of yourself and forges a love for him in your heart that is unstoppable. His work of grace will undergird you even when others seem to scatter. And he will, in the midst of your own weakness, still use you. To him be the glory. Amen.